Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Today, we have a fantastic guest, Mr. Ryan. Actually, you know what? I'm terrible with giving introductions based on our guest. I would just actually love if you can give us a little bit of background and then we'll, uh, we'll go into the spiel from there. Yeah, so my name is Ryan Alford. I'm founder of a company called Engineering Design Group. We also like to call it EDG or EDGE. We've been in operation for about two years. We design hardware, mobile apps, web apps, and the entire cloud infrastructure in between. And yeah, I'm here to talk to you guys about security and really happy for the opportunity. Oh, yeah. We are more than happy that you're here. I think one of the sore points that Neil and I have actually not run into is that there is a huge hardware element for cybersecurity and zero trust in particular, but most people beyond the concept of devices, it's not even on the table. It's completely missed out of a lot of the frameworks. I think maybe they'll do light touches, but for most people, they probably consume it in cloud-driven elements, which obviously there's aspects of what you do, and we can kind of get into that. But I think you're going to be able to bring a flavor of this conversation that we just have not been able to reach yet. This will definitely be highly enlightening, and I'm sure our folks at home are going to be thrilled to be able to kind of get that insight, especially for other startups and organizations who are trying to build in the hardware space and trying to meet with these current modern demands as well. Well, yeah, sorry, Neil, go do your thing. I always interrupt you. <laughs> no, you're good. I was just going to say, welcome aboard, Ryan. I usually let Elliot maybe preposition the room a little bit with the first question or two, and then we can take off and come back to him towards the end. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I usually chime in with the stupid comments somewhere in there, but no. yeah, I'm just joking. He's so, he wants you to know. He just wants to keep you off guard until he really lays it on us both. Might be the case. We'll see. So that being said, um, usually we do kind of throw out some basic questions, but I'd love some insight into what you're building today and where Zero Trust falls within that scope. Yeah, where, where we got really acquainted with Zero Trust was really when we started to work with bringing on employees and contractors and, and interns and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, we started talking about Zero Trust and, you know, the concept of Zero Trust, as you guys know, is basically never trust, always verify. On, on the company organization level, for us, that really meant limiting who has access to what. Right. You know, at, at, mm -hmm. at a very at a very minimal, you know, whether it's passwords for our infrastructure, whether it's GitHub repositories for things we're building and these sort of things. The whole idea is if if you bring on an employee or a team member or a contractor who's working on just one one project, they don't need access to all of your projects. They don't need access to your entire code base. They probably don't need access to your networking infrastructure. They don't need access to all of your passwords. So that was really where we started to implement zero trust right from the get-go, you know, using a password manager to help with all of this. And and from there it kind of just became one of one of the core elements to how we operate. And on the on on the product side, you know, we, we do develop hardware, software, cloud infrastructure. So there's there's a lot of pieces 
compared to some other tech organizations. You know, a lot of organizations will just have maybe the mobile app will be their focus point, or maybe the cloud and databases will be their focus point, or or they're just creating hardware. So we we also really needed to to think about this in how we're building our product. And you know, we we, we talked about the repositories and all of that and limiting limiting access. Mm-hmm. But when when you start to have hardware accessing databases and and users accessing databases, there's also a level with the technology where you you don't want to just trust your devices or trust your users. You need need everything to authenticate. And um, really what's what's interesting on the hardware side that, that I think is really important is treating hardware, treating the devices, IoT devices as actual users. And once you start to look at them as users, it, it can really simplify the product design. It can simplify the organization and, and the same types of zero trust concepts that you apply to users can also then be applied to those devices. So you are speaking to the choir on this. I lived and breathed zero trust accessibility. And I, I've made a note to Neil about this quite a bit because Obviously, in the past, there were things like putting a DMZ in place, which reduces some access, but most organizations still today rely on VPN access. And <laughs> that, as, as much as certain companies will say, and they say that somehow it aligns with zero trust, it, it still involves a level of implicit trust that just gives too much. But yeah, without a doubt, obviously, there's software-defined perimeters or SDP. There's now zero trust network access or ZTNA. I'm just curious and... I love the contractor use case because that is always like the easiest entry point for having that conversation about granular access controls and giving just the right amount. Because obviously, if they only need access to one database or one resource, you know, how are you looking at a situation like that where you only want to give them access like that? What are you trying to put in place to, I guess, prevent opening the or putting the moat down for the castle? Well, a lot of times, you know, if we are working with a contractor, it, it starts with really kind of that initial conversation with them where we're, you know, we're, we're effectively interviewing the contractor that we want to hire for their capabilities. But, you know, if, 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 if they're sitting down and telling us about the organization, usually, usually groups that are mindful of security issues are going to bring those up when you're hiring them and they're gonna they're gonna be eager to tell you about all of the things they're doing to protect your repository, protect your data, not put app secrets in the repository and those sort of things. And if they're not talking about that, you know, for us that's kind of become just the first red flag, you know, and well, if, if they're not talking about it, you're gonna ask them about it. Hey, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing to to prevent issues? Who's working on this? You know, what is your vetting process for your team members? And that sort of thing, and and it it for us it, it's actually felt like a pretty natural part of the process uh, when we're when we're vetting when we're vetting contractors. Now, I, I obviously all startups kind of do things differently, and you know we we've had some really good luck with contractors, and we've had some some experiences that were not ideal as well. And you know as as we're growing as an organization, we're finding that you know it's it's actually better for numerous reasons to keep our technology under our roof, right? You know, it, it eliminates that question of 
who's going to do what with our intellectual property. You know, you can sign as many agreements as you want, but if somebody's out there, if an employee of a contractor is fired and they have a copy of, of, of a repository on their laptop, well, you know, what can you do, right? You know, mm-hmm. unless the laptop is a company-owned laptop. So by, by bringing technology into the company and taking it away from the contractors, you become a more secure organization, but but there's also the benefit of that know-how is inside of your organization. So when issues come up, and they always do, you're not going to have to rely on the contractors to bail you out. So I'm going to personally backstep slightly on something you said a minute ago. I've got my handy-dandy note-taking devices, so I can remember to ask certain things that peak my mind and still pay attention. That being said, you know, getting started, you mentioned, you know, getting to a methodology around finally treating the devices as if they're a persona, right? More implicitly, you know, we tend to put our, in a standard IT frame of reference, you know, we tend to do a pretty decent job at a, at a good org at saying, you know, device A, talk to device B, and that's what it should be. Now, we don't necessarily do a good job monitoring when it starts talking to device C, however, right? When someone comes in and pivots through. But I think in uh, control systems world, this is one should happen a little bit more exclusively. And two, it's probably also a lot harder to do as people are still mapping old school OT to new school IOT concepts, right? So kind of curious in that frame of reference where you see a potential breakdown between 20 year old tech stack and trying to make sure that something can't pivot through those doors versus modern tech stack that might be able to take advantage of more common practice sense stuff where there might actually be a legit IDS inside the control system, right? Or some version within the historian or some control groupings, right? For that implicit. So just kind of curious your take on old school versus new school and treating the device as a person in that rationale and making sure you don't completely crash something. Yeah, that's a great question. Let me let me kind of start with the problem that we're trying to solve with our product and, and we can kind of dig in from there. And, and if, if I, if I take a meandering path, I just, just feel free to steer me. Our goal, our goal is really to allow our customers to, to monitor their data and own their data and, and get the raw data from any number of devices in the world that are connected to the internet, whether that be through Wi-Fi, cellular or satellite technologies, get that data to their fingertips in a reliable and secure fashion. To do that, you know, it's very easy to have an app talk to a small handful of devices, right? But what tends to happen when companies are are scaling up IoT, they're going to they're going to start with a small number of devices at first to prove that you're the vendor that they want to work with. Okay, they may purchase five or 10 or 20. They're going to put those on a handful of networks, maybe one network, depending upon their application. And they're going to use use this use a mobile app or a web app with a, a combination of users to access those devices. Once once that initial deployment is successful, the hope is that company is going to grow, right? If they have a retrofit solution, if you're retrofitting non-connected solution or, or some kind of a legacy solution, they're going to be quickly ramping up the number of devices that they're working with and the number of users. When you go from just 
five or 25 devices to 100 or 500 or 1,000, there's, there's, there's a lot of special things that, that need to happen to be ready for that, right? Making sure that the, the, the channels are big enough for the data, making sure that multiple simultaneous accesses are not, are not interrupting each other, right? So we achieve that with our cloud infrastructure. Okay, in, in, in our platform, there is, there's no way for a user to access a device or for a device to send data to the user without passing through our cloud infrastructure. So that's really where, you know, the, the, the API that, that we've developed that allows users to access data and that allows, that allows, that allows our devices to receive commands and, and, and submit data to the cloud that API is really kind of the first level of protection and all of the encryption and tokens and verification that has to happen there for authentication. That's really the first level of protection. So back to your question, which I think was, how is this different than, than the old way of doing things? And my belief is at least what I've seen in my in my career, which is you know limited to my worldview, historically, devices required a very large amount of configuration by the user, right? So the user had to know, you know, how to set up IP addresses, how to set up ports, right? Default passwords, which we which we hate, right? You know, every every device of this model number shipped with the same exact password. And now it, it it shows up out on the out on the internet, and that becomes an attack target for everybody today. So, part of how we handle that is, you know, as as you guys know, reducing the surface area available for an attack. What we try to do is make the best choice on behalf of the user. So all they have to do is plug in the device. You know, we ship them the device. All they have to do is apply power, and they log into an app. And everything else in the background just magically happens, right? They're not, they're not going in there configuring passwords, setting up, you know, setting up networks and, and, and this complicated stuff. So that to me is really something that can be done today. And, and we're starting to see more and more companies head in this direction that I think is gonna improve, you know, when when we look back in 10 years, we're gonna say, you know what, this worked a lot better than the way we did things 20 years ago because there was less configuration. I, I take my brain out into left field a lot. I used to do loosely termed exploitation and, and worked on like physical hardware security on embedded systems for all of like maybe a year and a half, two years. It's one of those things like, hey, who wants to go to Black Hat and learn how to poke and prod things with some diodes? I'm like, sure, send me. That being said, I, I love the concept of, especially with any device, any security device, the the fundamental idea of geofencing something. You know, if we think about it's a server and you've got it locked down the way you should and there's zero trust mentality that only things from this region, this construct, all this, that first entry point, barrier to entry, unless they somehow manage to go through the backside is always going to be from something not within your spectral area, right? Unless they happen to go to your house and actually go through your system, which is possible. I, I just, I don't know. The idea with geofencing for IoT makes even more sense because most of these are some kind of nowadays, some kind of cell phone enabled type device that inherently has a GPS chip somewhere in the solution. And um, well, one, thing that's, one thing that's really interesting about, about that comment, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we're seeing more and more 
devices make it into rural applications. And, and we're still in this shift of everybody transitioning over to cellular, but, you know, on our side, you know, so we're, we're, we're not just in the consumer space. We're also in, in a high reliability space. When you talk about high reliability, you, you start talking sometimes about defense contractors, sometimes about energy infrastructure, you know, thinking back to the, the colonial pipeline incident, right? You know, cellular devices are, are not going to be enough. There's going to be cellular devices, but there's going to, you know, pretty soon everybody's going to be phasing out cellular for satellite, right? And and there's there's going to continue to be a need for this geofencing. And, you know, when we, when we think about the, you know, all of the worry and, and scares of the transition to 5G and how is this going to work and what's going to be around, what's not going to be around anymore, nobody's really having that conversation of, well, you know, how, how do we need to behave differently once everything's on these satellite networks, right? And, and I, think, yeah. I think, you know, engineers, you know, I, I see a lot of engineers that are really excited about these devices. I'm excited about them. You know, I have some eval boards coming in that I'm, I'm really eager to play with, but I, I think we need to start looking at that and saying, wait a minute, this is, this is something we need to look at and, and really, really consider what are the pros and cons of this service? Because, you know, at, at the surface level, satellite sounds really good. But, you know, I, I think we need to pick it apart and analyze what are what are some possible consequences of going to satellite versus cellular for IoT. Yeah, on, on that note, I mean, that, that's a wonderful point. It's kind of funny, you know, the sooner we get tech now, obviously the sooner we phase things out as things get exponentially growth, all some other stuff. On that note, from a SATCOM's perspective, I am happy to report that there is an ISAC out there that is very worried about this idea. The downside is here in the States, right, we don't yet consider space infrastructure a, oddly enough, a critical asset, key resource, critical infrastructure, oddly enough. You know, it's considered a, a supportive element to other things still to this day. But obviously, if you took down SATCOM's, you took down, a, you know, some kind of earth station, something like that, there's so many things that are going to go away very, very quickly. Heaven forbid you just take out GPS on things and that really mucks everything up, right? Especially at these remote stations that rely on that for tokenization and, and passing off timing. That being said, Space ISAC, just to plug someone that I'm very familiar with, highly encourage looking into that endeavor. And you know, if you have a really good personal preference into that side of the house and, and getting involved as it seems like you might, hit them up. They're there in Colorado Springs. And on, on a side note, I'm also happy to make intros into that world too. I, I love the ISACs and the ISOWs. It's one of my personal things that I like to work in and then help do things with for collaboration information sharing. But you're, you're back on track. Your concerns about that are being directly echoed by this new community. That's so larger companies that are board members of this company have taken notice that the government seems to kind of push them off to the side. Now they're putting on this big major focus and there's this huge growth effort over the last roughly now almost two years to build something around the satellite community, satcoms, infrastructure up there, everything from rocket launches, physical, all the way down to the data layer, digital and everything. Well, the, yeah. it, it, one of the other things that that this conversation brings to mind is when, when we got our, you know, we got our router, we started up the organization, we got a router, had to get some equipment online. And, you know, I hadn't bought a router in 10 years and it has, it has, it has a backup for cellular, you know, so if your Wi-Fi goes out, you can still have 
you can still still have an internet connection to the office. And I think, you know, IoT devices talking about the transition to satellite, it's it it may not be a transition. It may be satellite satellite with cellular backup, depending upon the location, right? And and you know, a, a lot of when we talk about IoT devices, a lot of IoT devices are are being used for asset trackers or or like fleet management. So these are things that are going in and out of regions that have coverage. And and you know, maybe there's some parallels there where depending upon, you know, if if you have the option for both cellular and satellite, what is more secure for that application and why, right? And what's what's going to keep the the device connected in times of need versus, you know, which which of those networks is more likely to have a hiccup for for whatever reason. Yeah, I think that's that's something else I always forget about the trucks with their GPS monitoring and location tracking, all those other fun things. That's a whole nother bailiwick of funness. And that throws geofencing potentially out the door for that particular asset, right? And they can have their laptop and everything running through whatever comm system they've got in there. And, you know, they can drive from Cali to Alaska in, in two weeks, right? But when you think about concepts for me, the uh, the need for zero trust from an IoT device or, you know, pick a flavor of whatever it may be, an RTU, IED, whatever it is, those end units, that that's where the end goal is a lot for some of the potential threat actors is to get onto that end device to open up a switch or to close the switch, whatever they want to do. But at the end of the day, you know, whether they're exposed to the internet or not, if you make sure it's talking to this device and only this device, and then to your product's point, this device inherently is also managed through another product solution to make sure all this is managed correctly. And that's the only trust line. And it's that consolidation and monitoring effort, which in most OT networks doesn't really happen very well from what I've seen. Everything's just floating around out there. Maybe it's behind some kind of historian or MTU, whatever it may be for the sake of the human in the loop. But once you're in there, you are literally in there in a lot of these networks. And I think that's what kind of freaks me out a little bit. You have to get there still. And that, that is thankfully still a very hard part of the puzzle. But well, well, and I, I think what you're talking about, I, I think what you're what you may be alluding to here is, hey, you go out in the field, you you want to hack into some computer system. Oh, there's a USB port on it. I'm I'm gonna plug into this, right? And you know, there's this is another element that's interesting on the hardware side is there's there's I'm gonna group hardware into kind of two sets, okay? And, and there somebody else would yell at me for this, but. There, there's there's two sets. There's there's what I would call COTS devices, commercial off the shelf, right? So that that would be oh, you know, we don't have time to design something. We're gonna go buy this embedded x86 PC from this company because it has you know the latest Intel Core processor that we need. It's rated for minus 40 to plus 85 Celsius operation. They've designed it as an off the shelf product. I can order it. It'll be here in two weeks, right? When you're buying a product like that, where you're putting on the operating system and you're developing e-hardware, all of the connections, you know, the, the, the product is going to have a lot of peripheral connections available to it. You know, it may have serial ports, parallel ports, probably not parallel unless you're like really, really old school legacy embedded stuff, you know, Ethernet, USB, what have you. All of those things are going to be exposed. So when the user gets that product and puts their, their software on it, they can use it in whatever way they need. Well, there's going to be a limit. There's likely going to be a limit to what the user who's putting the software on it, what they can button down, right? It's going to be limited to the operating system 
and their software, you know, you know, whereas the vendor who's supplying that COTS product, you know, if that's running, if that's a, like an actual embedded computer running a BIOS, that BIOS has the capability to really lock things down in a different way at a lower level that's going to completely turn off connectors and not expose them in the address space, for example, right? Well, well, so we have this one category of devices, COTS devices, and, and that could include Raspberry Pis, Arduinos, anything where you get the product and everything's turned on. And then you also have this, this custom tailored world of hardware. And, and, and that, that also kind of enters EDG. We're kind of straddling that space now because we have, we have created standard products, but we configure them uniquely to our customer applications. And what's really nice about that is we can turn off we can turn off things fully at a lower level when they're not being used, right? And okay, yes, if somebody hijacks our firmware, can they turn it on? There's probably some way to do that we, that we haven't uncovered yet. But for instance, you know, if we have a product that you know, if if you had a product that uses Bluetooth for for commissioning that device and, and connecting that device to a Wi-Fi network, is that Bluetooth on? Is it left on 24 hours a day? Or when they turn on the mobile app to, to punch in the password, does Bluetooth turn on only on an as-needed basis? And then the vendor turns it off. And, and this is where I think the zero trust element really comes into play with, with customized hardware that is designed for a specific application. And that's that's where I think you know, there, there's a difference. And, and part of the difference is you can buy the Raspberry Pi, you can buy the off-the-shelf embedded PC and get up and running quickly, but but you're not going to have the same level of security granularity that you would if you're designing a customized solution from the bottom up or you're working with a vendor who's designing a custom solution for you from the bottom up. So I say it's nice to know that in control systems, unique customizations and and kind of DIYing it based off what you want is still a good is still a thing. <laughs> Old school, you know, when you get a Siemens product, pick a pick a step seven product back in the day, no matter where you're at, I buy it, you buy it, and they buy it, and everybody's ladder logic and programming structure within it is all completely different, right? Security through obscurity. I think that's a one oh one thing for most control systems. It's nice to know it's actually still a thing. I honestly think that's a good thing. I think unique customizations around certain aspects are inherent to what's needed, but also a good way to mitigate commonplace faults where, you know, just because you know that there's a vulnerability and pick a Siemens, Sprecher, whatever product or whatever it may be nowadays, I'm a little behind on the brands that are out there, but it doesn't mean you're going to actually use it on target A when you found it in target B, even if it's actually readily available, because hopefully they maybe turned it off. Anyway, that being said, when we start thinking about deployment operations and and putting these devices, do you think from an IT to OT perspective nowadays, do you think it's based off of what that network is supposed to be doing? Do you think it's easier to do the right thing to lock down an OT world comparatively to an IT world from a zero trust mentality? At least at like the core end device. So coming back up to the top of that, where you know treat a device like a person perspective, right? Um, you know, an endpoint device should really only ever probably really talk to one other thing, right? It maybe a couple depending on the engineering, what kind of accesses they're going through. But it sounds like with y'all, 
the idea is to provide that central focal point for log management, perhaps, if, I, if I'm understanding right. Right. Yeah, it, it's it's not just for log management. You know, the log management is important for for debugging purposes and for security purposes. It The central point is, you know, what can I say? How, how do I say this? It's the logical way to design a platform for distributed systems, and it comes with, it, it, it lends itself to security in some ways, right? Now you have to design in various things, right? It's not just going to be secure, but there, there is an inherent nature to security when you're using, you know, when you're, when you're not allowing devices to, to, to interact with each other directly. But I, I think you're, you're still going to have that. We haven't quite gotten into that area. You know, we, we, we've had some customers that have asked us, you know, where, where, okay, we have this one device that needs to talk to these, these other things that are local to that device. You know, I guess, I guess that would be in the realm of edge, edge compute. Right. But we, we haven't actually, our company hasn't, hasn't actually implemented anything in that way yet. Yeah. So I think the one concern I probably have with, I don't know if Zigbee still a thing or not, maybe it is power infrastructure at the neighborhood level back in the day relied on, maybe it still does Zigbee for the new, the new meters and the lights and everything to really talk, but it's a full mesh topology kind of concept, but it was, it was an implicit trust model. So if you could get into the system one way or another and understand what formatting they were using for traffic, you could get into the system and collect a lot of fun things. Oh, wow. And it, you know, it's inherent to any communication structure. It ran off of the same bandwidth as 802.11. I'm going to get it wrong. G, I think. I don't remember. But anyway, long and short, different protocol standard for comms. But there was this implicit trust when you set it out because it was supposed to be a closed network. But you stick up an antenna. And if you can take enough packet capture and understand what it is you're looking at, congratulations. Most of that stuff wasn't very well encrypted. Or if you get access to someone's meter. And by proxy, you know, they can talk to any other meter on the network because they got to pass billing data down this mesh to eventually whoever's collecting it in the billing system. So I guess that's something that I'm thinking about from a worrisome perspective is, and it sounds like we're moving, at least from your realm of what you're working with, they're, they're moving away from maybe the core competency of that loosely, hopefully, <laughs> and moving towards more of like back to that centralized piece. Yeah, um, it, it's hard to say. I, I think it's going to be application specific and, and, you know, some of the areas that we're trying to get into right now, which are, you know, more in the, the oil and gas and energy space, we're, 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 we've recognized that there's already some IoT infrastructure in place, right? You know, when we're, when we're trying to solve one of their problems and we say, hey, we've got a product for that, you know, there's going to be this push pull of, well, oh, well, we've already got our network we want your device married to that because we already have this point that's communicating up to the cloud. And, you know, again, it comes down to convenience, time, money, and okay, you know, what are the consequences of that? And, 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 and is the, the owner of that application will, willing to live with those consequences, right? So we're going to have to deal with this pretty soon. You know, we're going to be dealing with this this year, some of these questions. If I may, there was, there was something I wanted to talk about that kind of, I think also lends itself to zero trust. And, and, you know, there's always this trade-off of, you know, how much data are we sending? What's it going to cost us, right? What's, 
what's our monthly cost per device? And one thing that that we've been noticing is, oh, geez, our, our costs are higher than we thought they were going to be. And the reason that is, is, is you know, as a small company, we've we've been segmenting our customers to, to, to use. We actually have several, we have unique instances of our infrastructure for each customer. And, and our philosophy behind that was, hey, if, 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 you know, these are slightly different app applications running on the same infrastructure, different data sets, different numbers of systems, if we have one customer's application goes down, you know, if something were to happen, the other customers don't suffer, right? Those continue to run. But similarly, we've also done this for the security side, right? It, 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 it keeps, you know, if, if somehow somewhere were, were, someone were to get into our system or, or get onto one device, they're not going to be able to hijack our entire customer base, right? Because these things are segmented. Well, that has a higher cost to it, right? You know, you're, you're running more app instances. You, you have a lot more things to manage. So what we've started to look at and, and you know, what, what virtually every, every SaaS company does is there's different pricing tiers, right? So we're, what, we're, what we're going to be doing for our entry level tier is, is everybody's bundled in on the same on the same system right and this is where you know i i think i think from the user standpoint you know what our experience is with customers is is again we want to buy we want to buy a device we want you to ship it to us we're going to plug it in we need to access it if it works it works that's all we care about nobody nobody is out there scrutinizing hey well Okay, what's the difference? You know, what do we really get with your enterprise plan? And and you know, I, I and I think this comes back to you know, we're here to serve our customers, and 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 that means steering them in the right direction that is best for them, even if they don't know that, right? And and having those conversations and and having those discovery conversations about what they're doing to really say, listen, we need you on this tier because your application is doing something very sensitive. It's going to cost you more money, but let us explain to you what, what you're, what's going to happen here. That's different than, than this lower pricing tier, right? You know, again, from the hardware side, not trusting that our own hardware is secure. You know, somebody can and will hack into it. This happens to every company and every company who says, you know, our devices are, 100% 100% secure probably just doesn't understand security, you know, and, and, you know, you, you do everything you can. It's, it's a defensive thing. You, 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 you follow, you know, you, you patch things, you send over their updates to your devices, you watch the news and, and you get the reports and, and you, you plug the holes in the ship before their holes, I guess. Right. But inevitably, as we learned, I think two or three years ago in the X86 world, Spectre and Meltdown. I don't, I don't know if you guys, uh, if, if you heard those words in your circles, but what they, they uncovered that, you know, every, every X86 system going back like 20 years had these vulnerabilities and the only way to patch it was with a BIOS update. Right. Well, so how many of those systems are, 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 you know, running, you know, clean water for municipalities today that don't have the BIOS update, right? It's, it's not so much the, the security, you know, we're, we're not so much worried about 
what's going to be exposed today, but the, the nature of IoT is, you know, you know, millions of devices getting put into the world every day, every week, and the growing number of devices. Well, what about the devices that just get put out into the world and then the company ceases to exist and there's no more updates and, and customers, you know, they have, you know, you have all these consumers with these IoT door locks and IoT window locks and, and one day they're just not going to be supported. So what? You just throw all that away and, and, you, and you go install a bunch of new ones. So again, I, I think all I'm saying is that things, there will become a time where the technologies of today will be able to be hacked. You know, we're going to be at a different place five years from now, 10 years from now. And, you know, we need to do what we can as soon as we can to, to defend those devices. Yeah, I think you incidentally opened my favorite can of worms, which is the concept and definition of zero trust. Because if you look at it, maybe from the vendor side, not as much, because I feel like they're being a little bit more intelligent about it now. But silver bullets, as far as security technology, definitely used to be a thing. But zero trust definitely puts gets put very high up on a pedestal as far as uh, how secure uh, that concept and following it to a T will basically enable you to prevent breaches and elements like that. So I fully appreciate the realist view, which is somehow, somewhere, internally, externally, there's going to be an entry point, regardless of you know adoption of zero trust or specific technology elements such as that. But yeah, there's a, that is there was yeah. there was a sensor manufacturer a couple months ago that I was. I was talking to, you know, we were, we're going to be evaluating their sensor and, and, you know, we're, we're putting it on our platform, but they had their own platform. And, you know, of course I asked, well, okay, you know, what are you doing to secure your platform? And it was kind of just, oh, don't worry. It's secure. <laughs> and it's, well, you know, don't give me that, you know, okay. Okay. So what are you doing? You know, are you working with an external pen testing group to, to, to verify that, you know, can you send me a report? You know, what are you doing? And, and you know, I, I think there's lots of, there, there's always more that companies can be doing, you know, and, and you know, we, we are big, you know, okay, we're developers, we're engineers, we're big on testing, we're big on automated testing, but we're also big on cross-testing and having other people, you know, if one person writes the code, having somebody else on the team review the code, test it, but, but hiring external test parties and, and external penetration testers, I think there's so much value in that because they have their hands on other products. So their their experience are, are going to be not nearly as narrow-minded as as you know the, the teams who are designing the product where you're you have tunnel vision, you're just like, okay, we have to ship, we have to ship, we have to ship, you know, and I think that's that's a very delicate balance that a young startup company has to deal with is meeting deadlines, but also, you know, is the product secure, you know, and, and, and I don't think there's a right answer for what that balance is, but continuous improvement is something that all companies can and, and should be working towards. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. Device security is a lot more than just making sure an IP address can't get to it. You know, it's a lot more robust requirements around that. And the last little piece for me, you mentioned earlier on about, you know, the physical access perspectives of this, right? So right down to the whole thing. If you don't have a robust security posture for physical, digital, and, and everything else that goes in between, 
just because I can't log on from IP address A, B, or C doesn't mean that I'm not going to find something else if it's still dangling out there on the internet in front of other stuff, right? At some point in time, you will find that hole, you will get in, and there's a lot of other things that go into that mitigation strategy to make sure that that one hole is not as impactful downstream. For yep. Yeah, totally agree. And I think actually, Ryan, you and I had kind of discussed this before. I know it's future state and basically product holes into what you do with pen testing and activity like that, but finding those proactive elements that really just allow you as, you know, your own worst enemy allows you to kind of crack open the system to the best that they can. A couple other things that I, I just wanted to throw out there before we're done is, you know, zero trust it, it doesn't have to be an expensive thing for companies to implement. It, this it's a cultural mindset, right? And and I think once once you have a cup, once your called once your once your culture has adopted that mindset, it it becomes baked into your your daily habits and, and how you operate. But similarly, one one last point I really wanted to talk about was vulnerability disclosure policies, VDPs, and and this is something. We encountered this within the last six months. Um, I think the group is called the IoT Security Foundation, and I was talking with them, and and I read this article. Oh, you, you need a VDP? I was like, well, what what is this? And and vulnerability vulnerability disclosure policy. This is another small shift you can make in your organization, and 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 it's really coming up with a a, a, a short, simple, easy to digest document that is public, that tells tells your customers, here's how we handle security vulnerabilities. And and it, it, does, a couple, it, it, it does a couple of things. First, anyone who does find a bug, it, it gives them a dedicated channel to reach you. And, and but probably more importantly is, is it communicates, hey, you know, we're, we're not going to point fingers at you if you find this bug, you know, we're going to, we're going to need to look at it. It's going to take us 48 hours. Then we're going to respond to you. And, and it kind of, you know, what, what you don't want is for somebody to find a bug and for some reason feel like they can't report that to you. You want to know about it. And, and so having some kind of a web contact form or an email dedicated to this with a public public facing policy, it, it, it kind of says, Hey, you know, here's the type of company we are. We want to talk openly about this with you. We, 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 if you find something, we hope you'll, you'll talk to us about that. And I have not looked for any company that's had, that's had one of these, but I've never, you know, what was the privacy policies, right? Hmm. Yeah. You know, suddenly in the last, all, all of a sudden, every company had a privacy policy and you go to their webpage and it's boom in your face, privacy policy. Well, you know, I, I hope there comes a time where, for IoT companies, we're going to see, oh, privacy policy, vulnerability disclosure policy, right? Because these are things that, you know, companies should be educated on. We should, we should, we should, we should know that these exist. We, we should, you know, put the link in the bottom of your webpage or wherever. Maybe it doesn't need to be a pop-up, but, you know, if you're in the business of IoT, you, you are in the business of security, whether you like it or not. I, I love that take. I mean, what you basically hit on is, building and establishing trust in a zero trust world. You know, when you start a baseline at zero, how are you able to do that with customers and people that are connected to your devices and software? So being able to have that level of transparency and communication 
that is not something that a lot of organizations are probably comfortable doing. So being forward thinking and kind of build that into your culture. I mean, the only thing that I could figure would be that is a, an, a step towards establishing trust. And again, and, just not a lot of organizations are comfortable with it. You know, and you know, we're, we're a young company, we're small and we, we hope to grow in, in, you know, part of our strategy is, is really people aren't going to buy our stuff unless they know how we operate. Right. And educating customers on proper practices, whether 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 those practices are security related or not, whether maybe maybe it's, hey, here's how you want to wire your system to make sure that that you're not getting noisy data. Right. But educating your customer on these types of practices, it 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 builds it builds trust, like you said, and, and really, you know, you know, we want to be there when, when somebody, when somebody's comparing and con- contrasting companies, Hey, who are we going to buy this device from? We want them to say, well, you know, we, we read that one article from EDG and they taught us, they taught us about, you know, this particular feature. And we really like that. We're going to buy from EDG. Right. And, you know, again, these are all, they're, they're tools to improve security, but they're also tools that will actually help move your company forward. Day one. We did this the last call too. Day one, if you had to pick something on the zero trust concept to start off with, whether that's research, which everybody hopefully is looking to do that too, but whether it's learning or implementation focus, either either side of the spectrum, what is day one for you for people kind of just diving into this really about or could I be? Would, I would say low hanging fruit, go down, you know, implement a password manager and, and create, you know, vaults or areas in that password manager that, that limit what users, what, what your team members can access, restrict their passwords on an as needed basis. It, it's a, it's, if you're a small organization, that's a really quick thing to do and, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. So that would be that. I think that's a great introduction to understand how zero trust works. Excellent. Thank you so much for your insight. I appreciate that we were able to do a bit of a deep dive between the hardware and then some of the lighter touches, which is more friendly to my education. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Again, just thank you so much for your insight. I think this has been incredibly interesting. A lot of people beyond the devices, just at the basic level and user touch points, don't really look at the concepts of zero trust involved. But I feel like as we kind of build this conversation, you know, we'll be able to point to this conversation and be like, hey, this is exactly the kind of concepts that we need to look at being fully transparent, taking into consideration policy and documentation and what elements that those are going to play in the future of Zero Trust. Thank you so much for being able to be part of that conversation. Yeah. Ryan, thanks for putting up with my ignorant questions. Like I said, I, I have weird ones, but every once in a while they come back around to good things. So thank you for, for following along with me. <laughs> I certainly have some homework on some acronyms to do when I get out of here. No, I, I really enjoyed talking with, with you, Neil and Elliot. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about zero trust and security in the IoT space. I had a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, thank you all so much. And thank you for listening. We will see you all next time. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.